Adam Siegelman, uh, welcome at the Good Folks podcast. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you for considering me, I guess, a good folk. <laughs> well, we only bring the good folks. I mean, we've been talking about doing this interview for a long time, like doing this podcast, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you here and uh, talk to you. You're one of the um, stars of the new embassy uh, staff, you know, who are running social media and uh, doing a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of videos uh, dressing Algerian culture in a way that I think that the embassy team never did before, like in the past years. Um, and, and it's also very unique in comparison with other embassies in Algeria. There are a lot of embassies representing different countries, but only the U.S. embassy are the ones who are like connecting with the people in a way that the Algerian people were not used to. Um, how does that make you feel? <laughs> well, first of all, let me say, I don't consider myself one of the stars, I think. <laughs> Paul uh, and Salman uh, are really, so I'm, li I'm like a bit player, I'm one of the role players who comes in every now and then. Um, but really the kudos go uh, to Paul and his team uh, and Salman as well. I mean, I think they're the creative force behind uh, what we do on social media. And I'm just happy I get the chance now and then to, uh, uh, to make a cameo. But you know, I think what we do on social media, and I was in charge of our social media uh, accounts when I worked at the Consulate General in Jerusalem, uh, which was the representation we had to the Palestinian people. And uh, you know, I think what we do is, it is different. Uh, I'm not gonna compare us to other embassies and what they do, because everyone's got their own style and their own goals. But I also think it's very, uh, it's very American. I think when you think about American culture, uh, and American people, we don't like to put people on pedestals. So yeah, sure, we're all diplomats and that can be considered prestigious or whatever. Um, but I think when you find a lot of Americans, you know, we don't want to be called sir, we don't want to be called by our last names, or there's, we don't want the monsieur or the Said or whatever. We like to be called by our first names and we like to show that we're just like everybody else. And you even see that even if you look at like the US elections or what have you. You know, it's, it's very common to see uh, people who are running for elected office in the United States, you know, dress normally, talk normally, try to show that they're normal people with a sense of humor, you know, do fun videos. And, and so I think that not only are we trying to connect and we're trying to be entertaining and we're trying to get the word out about what we're doing, but that's also, in, in my mind, part of what it is to be American and part of us sharing our own culture. Yeah, that's actually something I noticed when I studied in the U.S. So I went to the U.S. and SUSI program, or a summer program for, a month, for five weeks. And uh, we were at the University of Connecticut. I remember that there was a um, teacher we had there. And he used to tell us, like, please don't call me sir. Call me just Jack. Don't call me Mr. Barry. Don't call me Barry. Just Jack. You know? And uh, that was really um, new to me. Because here in Algeria, I think that uh, most of us Algerians were used to uh, thinking that it's like a sign of respect when you uh, call someone you don't know as Monsieur, Mr. Uh, Sayyid, you know. Um, so in the U.S. it's like it's totally different. You make people really uncomfortable when you, told, when you tell them Mr. Or, 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 or Sir or, or whatever. So they prefer just being called. Uh, and even professors who have really good knowledge, they know that they, they are a big deal at the university, but they, they, they just want to socialize with normal people just like any other person, you know. And uh, I, just, I just don't know where this is coming from. Does it have to do like with the U.S. culture, uh, like U.S. history or... 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I do think that it has to do with our culture and our history. Um, as a country of immigrants, uh, where you had everybody kind of coming in at the same social strata. Uh, and I also just think culturally for Americans, uh, I don't want to give the impression that we're a classless culture. Of course, there are classes, uh, socioeconomic classes in the United States, uh, as you'll find in any capitalist society. But it's not considered uh, appropriate to point out those differences. Sure, you can tell. I mean, somebody you can tell just by looking at somebody's clothes or maybe by the way they talk, you can get ideas. Maybe, okay, that person's from this class or that class. But it's not considered appropriate in American culture to point that out or to do things uh, that would show a differentiation between you and somebody else class-wise. And I think that's part of it, you know? We all want to, even if there are known subconsciously or consciously known class differences, we at least want to give the impression uh, that they don't exist. But this also maybe goes beyond that in the sense that, uh, you know, Americans are very chatty. Uh, they like to get to know yes. you. Um, they like to create connections right away. And when you have the Sayyid or you have the Monsieur, or the, at least in our culture in Americans, when you add that sir, you're automatically just creating a distance right away. And so a lot of Americans, not all of them, some Americans still like to use uh, those titles. Uh, or their last names, but a lot of Americans say right away, no, 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 please call me Adam. <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, when, you, when the first time you started working as a diplomat, were you uncomfortable when, like, you have, you, I don't know, like, you, you go to places, like, in uh, special cars, and you're around, like, special people, and maybe you don't get to interact with, like, with the general public much, and uh, people maybe feel a little bit shy to approach you and talk to you? Um, like from Adam, like just in America, the American Adam and now the diplomat who is working in foreign countries. Like how, how was that different to you? Yeah, um, so uh, let me preface by saying I've, I've spent my entire career uh, with one exception in the Arab world. I started as the cultural attache like I am now uh, in Yemen. Then uh, I was in Madrid, that's the one exception. Then uh, I was in Jerusalem as the press attache. Uh, and then I spent a year in Morocco studying, uh, studying Arabic. Uh, and now I'm here as a cultural attache. And I will tell you that I don't think, at least in the Arab world, people are shy about approaching me. <laughs> I haven't had people uh, get nervous. People like to talk to, uh, to Americans and they, they like to talk to diplomats too, I think. Um, I do feel uncomfortable sometimes, not as much here. Here I feel like I could be more of myself. Um, but in, in the Palestinian, in the West Bank, and in Yemen, uh, because of security issues, when we rolled up to an event, we were rolling up in armored cars, and uh, sometimes we'd have guards who were around, and that I don't like. I do feel like that creates automatically this sort of uh, uh, distance between yes. you and the normal people. So that was a barrier I felt like you know, we had to overcome. I'm glad that, uh, that here uh, we don't have those, those same kind of uh, security concerns, and you know, I can drive right up here in my own car and, and come and hang out with you guys. Do you feel sometimes that you're worried about the politics that you cannot control? Like, for example, you have your own tasks, your own job as a diplomat representing the U.S., but whatever is happening between different countries in the region, you say, like, this is going to affect my life. This is going to affect, like, how comfortable I am and how I'm walking the street and now, I'm, you know? Yeah. Well, I like to joke that everywhere I go, massive change tends to follow. So I went to Yemen in my first tour. 
uh, and the Arab Spring breaks out. Um, President Saleh ends up stepping down. Uh, then I go to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm working for the consulate, so I'm dealing with the Palestinians. And then the U.S. Embassy moves to Jerusalem. The Palestinians cut off relations with us, essentially. Come here, Bouteflika steps down. You know, even when I was in Spain, they couldn't form a government when I was there. And they had a mini two. Was it the conflict between uh, Barcelona and. Uh, when I was there, yes, they had the separatist uh, movement in Barcelona, but they couldn't form a government. I can't remember exactly why, uh, but even when I was in Spain, uh, they had trouble uh, because I think Spain, ugh, I, might be, I wasn't in the political section, but for some reason, the, the parties couldn't get together and, and, and form a, a unity government. They eventually did. But, um, you know, we can't control any of that and uh, we can't foresee it. Uh, no one uh, in, in U.S. government or in any government that I saw was able to really predict the Arab Spring, for instance, uh, or even the protest and massive change that you had uh, here in Algeria. So I think that, you know, for our jobs and, and, and lots of other people who are working on the economy uh, or the nonprofit sector, I mean, part of, I think, what makes you effective at your job is being able to not necessarily predict, because I think that's very hard, but when things are changing, be able to, to change with them, to be flexible, to support them mm. in, in interesting, yeah. creative ways. Yeah. That's really cool. I mean, problems follow Adam wherever he goes. <laughs> <laughs> <But> hopefully solutions, <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah, um, I really hope so, too. So what, before, before starting, uh, before we started to record, we were talking about uh, you being in Algeria during COVID-19, these like really hard times. And I think that, uh, I'm really not sure about this, but I thought that maybe a lot of diplomats are like forced to stay in the country because there isn't much traveling. And even when there is traveling, it's uh, few and you need to take a lot of precautions and so maybe probably a lot of diplomats in Algeria, Americans or non-Americans are like staying in Algeria and so they're forced to to find fun things to do here. So to hang out and to discover places. I'm not sure if that, if that was your case, but I know that like you've been going through uh, Algiers, uh, trying to find the nice places and the fun things that Algerians do. And uh, I'm not sure if you're satisfied about what you, what you uh, <laughs> have found so far. Uh, but could you tell us more about your experience regarding that? Particularly during the, the yes. corona times? Yes. Well, I mean, corona was tough. It, it, before, particularly as my job as cultural attaché, um, I was going all over the place to musical concerts, to art openings, you know, to dinner discussions, went to, to Soul lectures. King, Soul King concert. Went to the Soul King concert. Uh, all sorts of activities like that and you know for good reason that shut down for corona and uh you know we took the and i personally take the precautions very seriously and i wasn't for the first three or four months really i wasn't seeing anybody outside of my wife and my two cats so um yeah i mean it takes a toll um i try not to complain too much because i think it, the folks who, A, I mean, people are getting sick and people are dying, and alhamdulillah, no one in my family uh, has gotten sick. Um, and I also think that, you know, the folks who have small children in the house or have older people they're taking care of, I think they just have it the hardest. You know, the kids are running around, they can't go to school, they're trying to work at the same time. You know, I think that was incredibly, incredibly stressful um, for those folks um, and, you know, Thankfully, it was just me, myself, my wife, and my two cats. Yes, so we were able to entertain ourselves. 
So whenever you are about to complain about something, you start thinking about the people who, ha- who might be in worse situations than you, those who have kids, and uh, and you're like, oh, I have it better, you know, I shouldn't complain. Shouldn't complain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I work with him. My boss, for instance, uh, is, he's got two small kids, and his wife works at the embassy too, uh, and it's just impossible and, and very stressful. Uh, because kids, particularly, they need to get out, they need to run around, they need to be socializing with, with other kids. You know, we can hop on Zooms and socialize with our friends, but that's not how kids play, and kids need to play. Mm-hmm. And so the kids are stressed, and that makes the parents stress. So I saw it. I saw it in my colleagues, um, and I had colleagues also uh, with family members who got sick, um, a couple of colleagues uh, with family members who passed away at the embassy. So, um yeah, I mean, I've been able to manage. Last time I said, uh, I was told that I caused the panic at the embassy because I had, uh, I interviewed Karen Rose. And uh, three days after I got sick. Um, and then I remember like, I was like, uh, you have to do the test in order to, like for us to know if we're supposed to just uh, isolate ourselves or because I met you, Karen met you, you know, and we weren't wearing the masks. It's a, a very weird time because we're not used to that type of interaction to control each other all the time and worry all the time. And what's weird, what's weirder actually, is that I, di- I don't know anyone who uh, was infected and I also didn't infect anyone. So I'm just wondering how I got it. Like I don't know where I got the, 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 this virus. And what's also funny is that by, when, by the beginning of the virus, I was the one who was most worried inside my family. Mm-hmm. I was telling them to do precautions all the time, make them watch uh, videos of scientists talking about it. I was saying that, that this is serious sickness. You guys got to clean, you know, all the time and whatever. And nobody got sick except me. As if the virus is following, those people are afraid from it. I mean, I see people who are just... Uh, they are just messy and they are just living just like how they were living before COVID-19 and nothing happened to them. And then people are taking extra precautions and then they, they get sick. I just, I just wonder how it's spreading. Yeah, you know, this is one bear of a disease. Uh, it just, there's, there's so many things about it that make it just so hard, I think, for us to, to, co- to combat. The fact that it does seem to spread incredibly easily. The fact that people don't get sick right away. Some people don't get sick at all. Yeah, I, I think you hold it for one week, right? I think so, or maybe, yeah, maybe one week, maybe one and a half weeks. And so you have people walking around um, who, uh, who, are, who have the disease and they don't know it, and they can spread it to others. So I think it's a disease that's, that's very easy to spread and very hard to control. Um, you have other diseases that are, that are more dangerous, that, that kill you, but people get sick right away, and so it's easier to, to cordon them off. But, you know, with, with this particular disease, I don't see a really good answer for us until there's a vaccine, unfortunately. So I think the world has changed. And even I was reading um, a couple of days ago that even when a vaccine comes out, we don't know if it's going to be a vaccine like polio. You, know, you get the polio vaccine, and that's it. You're not getting polio. Or if it's going to be more like the flu vaccine, which is you get a vaccine and it protects you against some variants of the flu, but not other variants of the flu. So. So we'll see. I mean, in some ways, the world may never be the same. Yeah. Would you get a vaccine once it's, uh, it's out? Yes. Not the Russian vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless it's fully tested by, the, uh, by, by my government, uh, which I trust, by the Centers in Disease Control. 
Um, then, I mean, even if it, were, if it originated in Russia, I would still take it. But I would wait till there's really a, uh, a vaccine that we know is safe, uh, that scientists say is safe, that's been tested, uh, and is known not to have any other Plenty of people are so paranoid about the vaccines. They say, um, we don't trust any government. Like, no, maybe they're, they are, maybe they're testing us for something, you know. Um, and, I, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's a really hard time. So during COVID-19, I noticed that you were uh, participating in many online events mm -hmm. uh, and uh, interacting with many young people. Um, and you also work in uh, the cultural department where you uh, work on different exchange programs. And I'm not sure if you also part contribute in uh, interviewing people and checking their applications, and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but you're around that environment. And so I just wonder if what exactly, if you were to give an advice like to Algerian young people based on what you noticed, based on what you noticed, what you noticed about their, uh, their motivation and the, the way they think and their ambition and whatever, uh, what would that be? Yeah, so specifically for Algerians who are yes. applying for, for programs. Yes. Yeah, so I do do that. Um, so I, I'm in charge of uh, all of our exchange programs, all of our English language programs, all of our kind of arts exchanges, music programs. Uh, we do a lot in cultural preservation as well. And so, um, you know, I typically uh, review the professional programs and then my colleague Salman uh, does the youth and uh, university programs. And I would say that Applying for a program is difficult, uh, particularly because I feel like writing a personal statement or an essay uh, is something that's very common for us as Americans, and I think less common for other folks in the world, including Algerians. And what I think folks need to remember is I read, you know, I just got done reading the Fulbright Language Teaching Assistant. You, know, you go to a year, you teach Arabic in uh, an American university. I read 45 of those applications, 45. And so if, you're, if you know that, and I, and I read, I probably spend a couple minutes on each one. So we get these applications that are like this, they're 50 pages, people are putting every certificate they've ever gotten in there. I'm not looking at those certificates. I don't even look at people's grades, to be honest. I look at what they write. I look at how they present themselves. And what people have to do is they have to figure out how to differentiate themselves from the other 45 people uh, against whom, frankly, they're competing because we're going to get an interview about 10 of them. So to do that, you've got to get specific. You've got to spend time. You've got to sit down. You've got to think, what do I want this program for specifically? And how does it fit within my story as Wahib or Adam or whoever? How does it fit within my story of what I want to do that is specific and different from everybody else? Too many times I'm getting these applications and in the, in the interviews, same thing, where people are saying, you know, I'd really love to go to America. I'd really love to increase my, my, my skills or my competences, which they always say, which we don't say in English. Um, we say skills. Um, or I want to, to boost their skills. Yeah, improve my English and, uh, you know, get to know American culture. And, you know, all these generalities, well, those are all great goals, and, and they're all true. I know they're not, people aren't lying, but everybody's saying that. And what we really look for is somebody who says, you know, uh, I want to be an English teacher. Um, I've noticed 
I've been teaching English for five or six years, and you know, I've noticed in my classroom that you know really struggle to 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 get students to communicate the language. They're too used to just memorizing words, and you know, I want to go to the United States, and I really want to take a couple of classes in doing this. I want to bring that back to my classroom, and then you know, maybe five years down the road, maybe create a training manual and, and help other people do this, or eventually I want to become a I don't know an inspector. Or, However, we want to see that progression of, okay, here's a program, here's specifically what you want to get out of it and how you're going to apply it when you get back. It's got to go above and beyond the generalities. And that's the advice I give to everybody uh, when they're talking about applying to our programs, or any program, really. I don't think it's much different if you're applying for programs you know, in other countries as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that people, maybe it's, uh, they don't have to have very strict uh, well-defined plan for every single thing but at least show me that you know what you want and you got at least a plan you you thought about it and uh, exactly what you why why you want to study this and what you will do when you come back and you don't have to have like a really strict plan about all of this but uh, at least you have a plan right exactly at least it, more important the plan is, is exactly what you said what he did they thought about it and you can tell they thought about it it's okay if they said you know I'm not really sure ten years down the line mm. But you know, here are a few options. But you know, here's really a gap in my in my skill, a specific gap that I want to learn, and then eventually, you know, figure out how to apply it. Um, showing that they've thought about it and that there's a that it's, that it's specific and, and different is really what's in, what's. In. Yeah. Did you do any interviews? Did you interview any of those folks, the applicants? I'm doing all my interviews next week for Fulbright Language Teaching Assistant and the Humphrey Program as well. But I've done plenty of interviews uh, in the past. For Algerians? For Algerians. All right. What are some of the mistakes that they do the most, or maybe the ones that you spot very quickly and they're common? Common mistakes yeah. in an interview. I had Hamdi uh, Salami last time who was working at the embassy mm -hmm. once, and uh, he said that uh, we can tell very quickly when someone memorized what they were going to say. Um, and uh, like it, it appears the way they speak because when you ask them something maybe that uh, wasn't their mind, they just like freeze. Um, I remember when I was having, going to have my Susie interview, uh, there were many applicants who were actually shocked from the questions they had. And I was like, why? They said they didn't ask us about the application at all. We were preparing ourselves for the application. And then we went there, they were asking us about ourselves. You know, what do you study? What do you want to do? You know, like a... They said, okay, we know what you wrote in the application, but now we want to know about you. You know, we want to, and people didn't really expect that. Mm -hmm. So whatever they prepared themselves for, and sometimes people, they get off the line, you know, they, uh, they are asked something and they answer something else. Um, so I'm just wondering about your experience in that regard. Yeah, so I would say, I would go back to what I just said, because I still think that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. You've got to get specific. You've got to show that you've thought about something. Um, and it's okay in an interview too, like if you get stumped with a question that you weren't expecting, you can say, you know, that's a really good question. I've never thought about that. Can you give me 10 seconds to gather my thoughts? And then you start talking. It's much better than just immediately start spewing out an answer that ends up not being as good as what you might have come up with if you thought about it for a little bit. The other thing that, uh, that people need to think about in interviews is the length uh, of, of, of their replies. You don't want to be too short, but you also don't want to be too long. Sometimes you ask a question to somebody 
Um, and this maybe gets to your point about what they've memorized. And they start to answer the question, but then they go way off and start talking about all these other things. Uh, you only have like 10, 15 minutes. Uh, and so you want to be able to, you want to make sure you get through all the questions that the, that the interviewees or the interviewers are trying to ask. So think about that. Each answer, I think, should be, you know, be, be concise, be, be specific but concise, uh, you know, in 45 seconds of a minute. If you feel yourself talking longer than that, I think you need to tone it down. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a good advice for people who want to, uh, when will the next exchange programs uh, open? Is it in October? Yeah, well, you know, with Corona, everything's a little different. Um, okay. I think we'll still open up all of the programs that we usually open up uh, in the in the fall winter, um, but we'll have to see uh, what Washington decides to do about our programs. Uh, but yeah, usually in uh, in October or November is when we open up uh, the summer programs. So you'll see the Study of the United States Institute programs. Um, you'll have the MEPI leadership programs. Uh, tech girls program, tech women program. A lot of those we open. Uh, we open in November. If anybody wants, they can always just go to our website. We have all of our programs on our website, and it shows the dates that we usually open them. We have about thirty programs in total. You're right. And speaking about the website, going to their website and checking. Do you sometimes. Um, I'm not sure if you're running the social media account of Facebook and Instagram, but uh, sometimes people send questions that they have already been answered. <laughs> You know, and then you're just wondering, you're like, always go to our website. It's all there. It's just one click, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I, you'd be surprised. Uh, you know, I'm very, on social media, I'm very um, findable, if that's a word. Uh, I'm the only person with my name in the world. And on social media, I say that I work for the embassy and the cultural attaché. You'd be shocked how many messages I get from random Algerians that say, you know, what program is best for me? Or really? Oh yeah, I get visa questions too. Or you know, I want to go to the U.S. How can I yeah, do that? <laughs> exactly. Can you help me find a program? Guys, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> don't go to the cultural attaché and basically say, you know, I'm the message you're sending with that is I'm too lazy to do my own research. It's all there on the website, like you said. And um, I'm thankful that I'm in the cultural section and that we've got Paul and uh, and his colleague Badis who go through and reply to all the comments on Facebook, because you're right, it is a lot of the same stuff, and it's a lot of stuff that people could find at this time. Wait a minute, that's classified information. So it's not Khaled, it's not Paul who is answering the comments, it's actually Badis. No, they both answer the comments. Because like Algerians are just surprised because of the, what Khaled knows, like when <laughs> the, the way he answers, like it's very Algerian. They're like, how the hell could he know about all these words in such a short time? So I think Khaled, when he replies, uh, I think he signs, like he'll say Khaled. You, I mean, you would be surprised how much, I mean, Khaled is one of the best Arab uh, speakers and learners I think we have in the he foreign is. service. And he didn't take, so I took when I was in Morocco, uh, I had a full year of five hours a day, one-on-one -on -one Arabic. And I spent three hours a day with Fusha and two hours a day in Derija. So I had a whole year of two hours a day in Derija. Paul had no Derija. He just comes here, he listens, he really works at it. He watches, uh, he watches TV, he listens to music. So you'd be surprised how much he's picked up of the slang. I, I, my slang is terrible. Uh, but Paul picks up a lot. But sometimes, if you see something that's like 
okay, there's no way an American wrote that. It, might, it, probably, it probably was Batiste. Batiste is going through and responding as well. Uh, that's really cool. I mean, it's really funny. It's like the funniest embassy right now on social media. Um, and w what Khaled does good isn't only, isn't only speaking, but also it's like he emerged in the culture. Last time in the video where you guys talked about like the best things that you liked in Algeria, mm -hmm. he said the, the song of Arawi, mm -hmm. and I was like, you know, a lot of people in my family don't even know the song, even though they are Algerians. Like he came here and he knows about all like different stuff that maybe a lot of Algerians don't know about, even though they are cultural. And I noticed this, by the way, um, that when foreigners, non-Algerians come to work in Algeria, they like to experience the culture. They like to, to, to check Rai music. They like to eat cultural food. You know, they go to those restaurants where there is, uh, there is cultural food and then Andalusi and uh, music, you know, in the background or something uh, that comes from the Ottoman days. Or, and, and then there are Algerians who live here and they don't do that. Like they, they're looking for something different. Mm -hmm. Maybe you find them that they listen to a lot of American songs and Americans, they come here, they don't want to listen to American songs. They, they want something different, you know? Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure if you're one of those guys who, who like to do that. Do you listen to American songs a lot in comparison with the, the songs of the country you're working at? I still listen to a lot of American music, but I also listen to Algerian music. I, I, didn't, I, I don't think I've fully immersed. Like, uh, mm -hmm. I think Paul and Salman have taken on the full immersion more. They're on the next step. More they than I have. Next level. Uh, I still love my American music. And <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I do try to experience a little bit. I, I mean, I've been reading a lot of, uh, of Algerian novels. Um, I have been experiencing the culture, but uh, I still uh, I still love my American culture. Yeah, when you're driving, I wouldn't be a good cultural attaché if I weren't also immersed in the American yeah. culture. When you're driving your car in the highway, do you listen to American music? I exclusively listen to podcasts. That's amazing. When I drive, that's yeah, that's really cool. What what kind of podcasts? Mostly American, although Joe um, Rogan, no. No, I don't listen to Joe Rogan. Uh, nothing against him. I just don't listen to it. I like um, I like the stories. So I listen to this, this American Life, Radio Lab. Those are some of my favorites. Um, Planet Money is really good for little uh, economic stories. Um, I listen to. Uh, I also listen to podcasts in French and Spanish and Arabic. Um, I haven't found a good. Uh, Derija podcast. I would love to have any suggestions that you'd have for that. But for Arabic, there's a good one out of Jordan called Aib that I listen to. Uh, in French, there's a there's one called uh, oh I forget the name of it, but it, you know it's out of Paris. Yeah. All right. Well, Adam, you worked as the press attaché in uh, Jerusalem, mm -hmm. and so you have some experience in social media. Um, I'm just wondering if you have been following. Uh, the worries of the people regarding the privacy of information. Uh, I think it was like a month ago or more maybe when uh, Mark Zuckerberg and different uh, CEOs of different uh, social media companies like Twitter and uh, uh, they stood in front of the, con uh, the Congress, the American Congress, where they talked about uh, like how their companies are protecting information. And I feel like more and more people are in the world are getting more worried about their information. And especially when you're, for example, Googling something, let's say you're Googling uh, Mercedes cars, for example, and then you go on Facebook and then you start getting those ads about Mercedes cars and you're like, what? I mean, I didn't allow Facebook to know about what I'm Googling about. 
but um, I don't know. I don't know how they're working together. And some people they're just expecting, suspecting that some our information are being sold or something. And as someone who is experienced on social media, I'm not sure if you're following uh, those events. And I would love if you could tell us what you think about all of, if this worry is legitimate and uh, like yeah. Yeah, I think it's a legitimate worry, um, and I think that these companies in addition to other credit card companies, are amassing so much data about us um, that, uh, that they then, you know, turn into, turn into, basically turn into profit. Um, I personally don't worry about it uh, just because I'm, 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 I'm not a very private person. Uh, and I feel like I've made the, the bargain when I signed up for these, uh, these social media uh, pages that they're going to have my data. Um, and so it doesn't bother me, but I do think it's something that we should be concerned about. Uh, and I'm glad that the Congress is, is looking into it and looking into ways that it could be weaponized um, and passing laws to make sure that, um, you know, I think it's fair for them to use our data to sell to advertisers. That's how they make their money. I feel like that's the bargain that we all uh, signed up for. But there are more nefarious ways of using people's data that, um, you know, I just I would favor strong laws against that. And, and, you know, Europe has been thinking a lot about this, too, and they have some stricter, uh, stricter privacy laws um, that I find interesting. I'm not sure if I would support them or not. I'd have to look, in, look into the issue more. But um, I am glad, like I said, that Do you have the argument that, uh, you know, as long as long as I'm not doing anything wrong, then like I don't. I don't really care about if like my information are private or not. You know, I think in some ways it's a personal decision uh, that everyone has to make. Um, so you know, for me, the value of social media far outweighs um, the risks. So I'm happy to use it. Uh, I'm glad that people use it. I'm glad my friends are on it. Uh, but we are giving up our data. What are some of the advantages that you think of social media? Well, look at somebody in my job now. Um, you know. The, being away from our friends and family is so much easier now than it used to be. Oh, that's right. True. Uh, interacting with my family, I can call them, I can FaceTime them, I can Zoom them. I'm seeing what they're up to on, on Facebook and Twitter. So the constant communications, um, the ability that uh, social media gives to people to gather, uh, to find people who are like them, uh, to form these types of communities, um, you know, even the ability to, to protest, to use social media to gather people for democratic purposes. There's also a lot of danger. There's the disinformation. There's also the danger of bringing people together that maybe shouldn't be brought together, who might be espousing violent uh, ideologies yeah. and whatnot. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot of risk. Um, it's it, it is dangerous, but I do think that ultimately it outweighs the, the the good outweighs the bad. But it's the beginning. We don't know yet. I guess I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. Did you watch The Hater on Netflix? No, I don't. But uh, did you hear about it? Mm -mm. All right, so it's actually a Polish movie um, where they they talked about. I mean, it just expresses and prescribes this idea of, of of how social media can be really dangerous. To uh, to um, uh, the the thing is that what they actually put is a, a guy who was really uh, into um, social media. Like he's someone who's who's a nerd who uses Facebook and uh, Twitter and Instagram a lot. And then he was hired by a company where they actually told him that uh, your job now is to try to bring down 
uh, a woman who sells makeup online. You know, and then what he did was like creating those lot, like several accounts, and then he started a hashtag against that makeup, and then making comments, and with different profiles and with real pictures and everything, uh, saying that oh, I I bought your makeup, and then now my face is red and it's not working or whatever, and I got sick. And then when people read those comments, people, real people, when they read those comments, they get worried. Oh, so a lot of people are complaining about this product. No, mm -hmm. I'm not going to buy that. And then after a week or two, uh, her own the sales just decreased, they went down, and she, she, was, she started complaining. And then the, uh, that company that hired him were proud of him, and, but they said that, okay, great job, but now the next mission is we want you to, to ruin the reputation of a political figure who's, trying, who's doing a campaign in order to become president. And then he started looking him up and creating rumors and whatever, and that's what uh, we call by there is a name for that. In Arabic, we call it Dubab Electroni. I think in English is Boots, I guess. Um, I, I don't know what it's called in English. Yeah, but you see this phenomenon, I think it's also increasing where people, and people cannot verify the comments and accounts all the time. So they're looking at the, they're looking at the number of likes, they're looking at the, the, what the comments are saying, and then they make a decision if they like this person or they're not, if they're going to buy from this like business, they're gonna engage with it or not. Even those comments could not be, could be really untrue, could be like really um, misleading. So yeah, I think it's the beginning. Like uh, Facebook, Facebook wasn't, Facebook is also getting so huge, man. It's changing elections. Um, I'm not sure you're American, so probably you've been following with the news in the, the U.S. about the Russian, you know, um, mm -hmm. interrupting in the American elections or wherever. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, yeah. And also, there is also that's also very interesting uh, regarding Facebook. The way Facebook works, the, uh, the way the algorithm works is that it also feeds you with wherever you like. And so, for example, if you have right-wing ideology mm -hmm. and uh, you like a lot of right-wing ideas and then even the, the pages that are suggested to you on Facebook are only the pages of the right-wing the friends that are suggested to you recommended for you to add it also right and then so your environment is only with people who agree with you and then when you spend long time around this in, in this environment you think that's the truth you know that's what that is that isn't another side of the story and then you got people from the left who are also the same thing and so when they don't get to meet like we do in real life and talk about the, our differences and then you can see the other point of view then you don't get to change and then you become very rigid and very ideologically um, extreme you know um, extremist and so is this something that you notice is this something you're worried about yeah um, I think you hit the nail on the head I do think that social media and this ability to find like-minded people um, has a polarizing effect so I think people who might have been you know, ide ideologically slightly inclined towards uh, a particular viewpoint, and we could talk about left and right politically, but also you know, talk about religious extremism or other forms of extremism, I feel like can get pulled in that direction. Uh, and that is dangerous. Uh, and it's very, very hard, as you said, to, to combat. You know, people create these new accounts, they pop up. Uh, and related, you know, I think that, you know, going back to another point that you made about, um, you know, taking people down, these takedowns uh, on social media. Cancel culture, is that what it's called? 
Yeah, you know, I do not use the term cancel culture anymore. <laughs> because cancel culture means so many different things to so many different people. It's become one of these terms that's, that's so emotive and has such a strong connotation and not a clear meaning that I don't use it anymore. What I say is that I, I am somebody who believes very strongly in the, in the free exchange of ideas. And I think social media is great for that. Um, I love getting into discussions with people, particularly on Twitter, uh, and, and seeing the, the viewpoints that are, are interesting or different or, or different from my own. And I've had my mind changed by people. Um, and I, I, I think we should encourage that. But I think sometimes what you see is, is people express an opinion that's uh, either just wrong uh, or somebody doesn't like it or it really is beyond the pale. It's an opinion that people shouldn't have. And instead of trying to make somebody see the light or change somebody's mind, uh, there are uh, fringes, I feel like, that want to drastically affect that person's life in negative ways. And that's where I, I, I draw the line. Uh, except for, you know, obviously if somebody's a white nationalist or, you know, a race, that's a very clear, like, Ku Klux Klan type where, yeah, okay, take that person down. But if somebody uh, makes a comment that, uh, that isn't, you know, beyond that line, I don't think we should call for their jobs. You know, even if it's a comment that's, that's racist, um, you know, a lot of people are racist without knowing it, uh, and a lot of people make mistakes, and there should be consequences, I'm not against consequences. But this idea that we should uh, banish people from society is something I take issue with. But that's not what everyone understands to be cancel culture. Sometimes people understand it just as, you can't criticize me. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. So sure. the whole term, I think we should throw out the term and we should really just talk about what we think are appropriate consequences uh, to problematic speech. Uh, so, yeah, I do think that's, a, that's an issue. And, you know, you hear about people getting fired for, for you know, one bad tweet. And I, I'm usually against that. Yeah, great point, man. All right, so thank you so much for coming to our podcast, The Good Folks. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Um, Adam, we'd love to have you again some other time. Anytime, you know, in Corona times, we're not holding events, so uh, I got time in my hands. All right, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? No, just thanks for having me. I mean, I think you guys do such a wonderful job here, and it really is a pleasure, and I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today, guys. Uh, have a good day. Bye.